Hey there, Freedom Fighters. You're looking at or listening to the last two people left in San Francisco. Everybody else is leaving. Um, but I'm so glad that today's guest is, is here. As soon as COVID hit and schools closed, I wasn't sure what to do with my kid. And so I started reading up on how to teach my kid. I started looking for resources. And Eric Reese, the founder of The Lean Startup, he put together a page full of all these resources for parents who are homeschooling. I think he might be homeschooling his kids. So it comes from Eric. I looked at it. I tried this one thing out school. I thought, huh, it's pretty interesting. You pick from a bunch of different classes. You see the teacher. You see the ratings for the classes. And my sons can sit in front of the iPad or whatever Chromebook we were giving them at the time and learn directly by talking to a teacher, not by watching a video. And it was just so interesting, so good that I sent Eric a thank you note just for making the introduction, just for turning me on to OutSchool. That's how good this, this uh, marketplace is. Now, I thought it was this tiny little thing. And frankly, it was, it's been a while since it was tiny, but it's been small. After COVID, the thing got huge because of lots of parents like me. I know my, my brother is sending his kid into OutSchool over and over and over. They're kind of enrolled in ongoing classes. That's how impactful this thing has been. Basically, you pick whatever class you want and you get a live teacher teaching your kid and a few other kids. It's amazing. So uh, joining me is the founder. His name is Amir Nathu. He is the creator of OutSchool. It's a community marketplace of live online classes for kindergarten to 12, 12th grades. I invited him here to find out how he did it. I also discovered that he was the founder of this company that we used to hear about years ago. And I want to find one of the first Y Combinator backed companies. WebMind, I want to find out a little bit about that, and we can figure out how he got onto this idea, thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. Uh, the first will host your website, right? It's called HostGator, and the second, if you're looking for a developer, it, you got to check out TopTal, but I'll talk about those later. Amir, good to have you here. Fantastic to be here, Andrew. Looking forward to the conversation. Are you, are you getting a lot of reactions like the one that I gave you where it's, hey, my kid was on um, OutSchool, where before people didn't know you? Yeah, you know, frankly, absolutely. I often join work calls now and um, with uh, external partners or uh, group uh, discussions and in the chat, someone will be chatting to me. Oh, wow, my, my kid takes out school. So, so, so glad for your service. Um, you know, before COVID, uh, we were growing well, but we might not have been so well known in the Bay Area and within the tech scenes. There wasn't such an overlap between uh, some of the calls I did for, for business, but now like, like we get approached all the time, which is just wonderful, uh, wonderful to see. And we're so grateful to be able to help so many families, you know, during this very difficult year and difficult circumstances with schooling. What was your revenue before COVID? What is it at now, 2020? So our revenue has grown 2000% in the past six months. 2000%? Um, Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to share absolute numbers. I will say that we've had over 500,000 learners um, attend um, out-school classes. Unique learners. Uh, Different yes, learners. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh -huh. And that's, you know, actually attending classes that are, that are paid for, not just, you know, people signing up and, and browsing our catalog. And we launched the product in, in 2017. Up to COVID, we're growing very nicely. We're very happy with our business. You know, we were fast-growing, Series A funded. And we'd had 80,000 learners take classes in between, you know, when we launched in 2017 and, and March 2020, and, and now we're at 500,000 plus. So it's so just wait, been a really How many ride. thousand to 500,000? So 80,000. 80,000 total 
of the first few years. And then Correct. this last year you hit 500,000. What right. I saw in a Forbes article was, and also in my notes from otherwise was last year's revenue about $6 million. Can you say that? It's totally fine if you'd rather not. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. And then this year's revenue I saw from Forbes on track to hit hundred million dollars. My guess is that's where you don't want to be super clear about what the numbers are going to be. Right. Right. Because okay. we don't, you know, we don't know how this year is going to pan out. Unfortunately, we learned today that, you know, New York city are going fully remote in terms of their schooling. So I think there's still going to be COVID ups and downs, which, which will affect our business and, you know, frankly make, make planning and prediction pretty tough. I've got, I want to find out how you got to this how you got here, but I wonder, will it survive COVID? If people go back to school next year, are you going to go back to where you were before roughly, maybe double, triple, but not this, this dramatic? You know, uh, it, things are changing so rapidly. It's difficult to make predictions on the future. What I will say um, will stick from COVID is parents' understanding of the uh, benefits and some of the troubles with online learning. You know, before COVID, we might get asked, you know, okay, so how is this different from Khan Academy? Mm -hmm. um, now we never get asked that because everyone has this really vivid understanding of what live online means, like why classes that are interactive over video chat are different from you're doing a worksheet at home or watching content online and how they can be so engaging and keep the best of in-person with the best online. And that understanding of live online is just, you know, not going to go away. And it's kind of funny because we all, you know, use video conferencing at work, but the idea of using video conferencing for kids learning, um, you know, people didn't really compute that or, you know, understand what, uh, that it could work. You know, we have classes on like group guitar lessons, which we never thought, you know, uh, would uh, necessarily work in the format, but they really do. Yoga classes, um, you know, sports classes, things that you wouldn't expect to be able to be translated to online have translated pretty effectively. And so I think in the future, when parents are considering enrichments and what after-school clubs they want their kids to be involved in, mm. you know, what interests their kids, um, how to occupy them productively at the weekend, out-school is going to be in the mix as something that they'll consider because, you know, the price point, the variety, you know, all the yeah. good things about online, but, you know, with the human interaction. You know what I think? I think that if you have a great guitar class near you in person, better, better than going online without school. I'll be honest with you. But for most people, you don't have that perfect class. It's not like the teacher who's local gets your kid's musical interest, right? If you're into, if you're Spanish and you're into Spanish guitar, you're not going to have somebody, even in a city like San Francisco, who happens to be able to teach it to your kid. But online, there's a possibility. I'll give you another example. My kid happens to be really into geology, into rocks. There's no teacher who's going to teach them rocks. What am I going to go out to, to the YMCA and sign them up for a, y, for a rock class? It doesn't exist. I'll tell you what my dream is, Amir. This is my vision for where I'd love to see the world. My kid right now is in a pod right this minute. Somebody's garage, four other kids, learning mostly what's in his school curriculum, how to read, how to write, that type of thing. I would, and there's a teacher who's supervising the five, of the, the five of these kids. I would love it if I could say, you know, I would like my kid to learn Spanish. You don't teach Spanish. We're going to sign up for once a day out school class in Spanish or whatever. You guys do superheroes sometimes for kids. Superhero stories in Spanish with a teacher. Make sure that he does that at one o'clock and maybe everyone else gets another class at one o'clock and the teacher who's, who's leading the pod gets a break. To me, that seems like the future. 
maybe not all homeschooling for everyone, but pod schooling, homeschooling, and other options. And then remote teachers brought in for these topics that you just can't get locally. What do Absolutely. You, think? you know, I totally agree with that. I call it the hybrid model of education yeah. where you're pulling from different types of instruction, different types of class format with the idea that, you know, having a single type of learning that you engage in all day, every day, isn't the best way to elicit learning. It, 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 it's very unlikely to be the best way to elicit learning for, for any learner. And I think, you know, you point out exactly, you know, the benefits of online learning in terms of if there's not the local availability, then, you know, you can, um, you can access it online. I will push back on this idea of, you know, if there's a guitar class locally, then that'll be better than online. Maybe. Um, if it's with a teacher that really kind of gels and resonates for your child, and if the group um, is full of other kids that also gel with your child, um, it's quite possible possible to that you know the local guitar lesson. One of those ingredients just isn't there, and it's no one's fault. And it's not the fact that there's no availability of guitar lessons locally. It's just that a different style of teaching or a different group of learners might be better. And when you are able to access you know those groups of learners, those teachers from all over the world, then you're much more likely to be able to find exactly the right guitar lesson that is really really going to fit your That's what I meant. All things being equal, and frankly, even if things are just a little bit worse in person, I pick in person. I want the in-person activity for the most part. But it's not true. That's not the way the world works, right? Not everyone has the same interests as whatever the local schools are teaching. You want to go outside of it. Did you imagine this was going to be the future? Like you, before you started, I asked you, what's a win for you? You said, challenge me. Let's talk about where this is, what, what, what matters to me, not just how I got here. I wonder, did you imagine this future? Did you start out saying, we got to have better education. I'm going to lead it. This is going to be the thing. Or did you say this is going to be an after school thing or something to help homeschoolers? You know, I I really did believe and do believe that this hybrid model is going to be the future of education. You know, what I didn't know was that we were going to have a global pandemic, which would be have an enforced kind of, um, adoption of, of this kind of kind of learning. Obviously, we, we didn't predict that when we, when we found it in 2015 and when we launched the product in 2017. But, um, you know, absolutely, I thought that this format of learning was going to be an incredibly big deal because um, of the ability to um, bridge the, the gap between other forms of online learning, which is just like passive content, you know, pressing play on a video, which is not social, and in-person learning where you can get um, instruction from a teacher and a social environment with the students. And um, it struck me that this live online format was um, really gonna uh, transform K-12 education because it can combine the best of in-person and online. Um, so that's the kind of technology driver, but you know, honestly what, what drives me personally um, in this and, and really motivates me is you know, my own experience with learning and you know, the fact that both my parents were teachers and you know, thinking through how education um, is delivered uh, today and, and how it needs to evolve. And I've been thinking about those topics for, for a very long time. I want to um, ask about that. I'm interested in your parents as a parent myself. You said, I want to be an astronaut. Every freaking kid says, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> your parents instead did what? So, <laughs> well, um, my parents encouraged me to pursue my interests outside of school. And, you know, they do that in a variety of different ways. Um, they would, you know, buy me books, take me to the right museums. And, you know, at the time I just classified this as childhood. You know, what I didn't realize at the time was, you know, I had two teachers as parents who were very intentionally doing this for me. And then in retrospect, it struck me how important that support 
had been for me um, in my future career and how other kids might not have access to the same kinds of uh, resources and that intentional crafting of my education that, that I received from my parents. And, you know, let me give you some, uh, an example of this. You know, one of the most impactful learning experiences for me happened outside of school when my parents bought me a computer when I was age five. It was a BBC Micro. It came with a manual that taught you how to program basic. Because back in those days, to play computer games, you had to be on the command line. And so I started teaching myself how to program. And I had unlimited screen time, and I was able to play games as much as I want. But my parents noticed that this was a real interest for me and found me a teacher outside of school who was starting to teach computer science. And so I actually took um, you know, computer science qualification and A-level in the UK is what it's called at, at age, I think it was like 12 or 13, um, which kind of you know, was unheard of at the time. It wasn't taught in school. And that learning experience really has caused my career in tech. Now, did my parents think that that was gonna be the impact? No, but what they believed was that if they helped me pursue my interests, then I'd be motivated to learn and interesting things would come of it. And I look back and I had a fantastic standard education in the UK. I went to a selective uh, state school, um, got great grades. I studied engineering at Cambridge. And all of, the, all of those experiences you know, clearly opened doors for me and were immensely valuable. But then when I think about the skills that resulted in my career in tech and what I use as an entrepreneur, so much of that I acquired out, outside of school. And um, it was that insight and thinking through, well, um, if so much important learning happens outside of school and a lot of people don't have you know, access to it in the way that, that I did, how could we create more of that? And that's even where the name OutSchool comes. You know, how can we create more learning experiences outside of regular school? found the same thing for myself. And then I just didn't know where to go to learn this stuff. You were lucky that your parents had the ability to do it. My parents were immigrants. They didn't know how to, like if, if I was interested in the stock market, for example, they didn't know you can just go to the New York Stock Exchange and look around, right? They didn't even know where to take that first step, let alone the next step, which is how to teach them what this stuff is and so on. The astronaut thing, I guess a little later in life, you took flying lessons as a way of going on the path to flying into space. Am I right? Do you know how to fly a plane? <laughs> I did train with the Royal Air Force in their kind of cadet program uh, in college. So I did consider, uh, uh, you know, flying planes for a living um, and even go down the military uh, pilot route. And that would be the route to, you know, take me to be, to potentially become an astronaut. You know, I, I ruled that out fairly early on after I realized there were certain things about, you know, being in the military, which didn't really gel with me, like taking orders and uh, bombing people. <laughs> but so I learned a, a lot through the experience. As a guy who didn't want to take orders, how do you end up at IBM? You're done with school, by the way. I heard you skip a, skipped a grade. Impressive. I see how smart you are, and I see how your parents are willing to work with your intelligence instead of saying, stick with the grade. This is the process. You want to think for yourself. You don't want to be in the military because you can't deal with being told what to do. You end up at IBM. I'm not putting IBM down. I'm wondering what drew you to it in the first place, and then we'll we'll understand what you learned from it. But what was the attraction to IBM? So the attraction was the software. Um, I was just really, really interested in software and the fast feedback loop in being able to create something relatively rapidly that could be used and have an impact. And in contrast with other types of engineering, where you know, it was a lot more kind of waterfall, a lot more upfront investment needed in order to create something, just the speed of creation is what, what attracted me to software. 
And, you know, I knew that, you know, if I wasn't going to be an astronaut, what I wanted to do was create, uh, create a business around software, uh, uh, preferably creating computer games, you know, from my original inspiration of, of getting into software. And, um, you know, I really saw, uh, you know, at the time in the UK, there weren't that many opportunities to work for companies and improve and learn the craft of, of building software and the business of building software. And um, whereas IBM, you know, US company, global corporation, had a big software division, a big software lab uh, in Winchester in the UK, that seemed like a good ground to go and, and learn. And, you know, now when I look back and see everything I've learned and uh, see what happens in Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurship here, you know, it's easy to question, well, why did you spend all that time at IBM? That's completely antithetical to, um, uh, you know, to how things work in the Valley and you, you have management yeah. and hierarchy. It's a huge multinational firm. And, you know, all that's true. Um, at the same time, for where I was in life, uh, I think it was incredibly valuable to, to get that base. I and wonder if also this was... This was after the dot-com bomb. All these internet companies that were supposed to change the world. There was Yahoo, but also Excite. There was eBay, but there was also Pets.com. And for every successful company, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of failed wannabe billionaires, right? I wonder if you said, I love software. I don't love this environment of fake companies without much substance. I'm going to go where I think software has more substance. You know, it really wasn't no. that. I, I think, you know, from the question, I think you're overestimating how much I knew about startups at the time <laughs> and really how much, in, how much knowledge there was in the UK about what was happening in Silicon uh, Valley. Remember, it, it, there wasn't the kind of cult, the cultural understanding. I didn't yeah. have that. I didn't know what was happening in Silicon Valley. I didn't know that the culture in early stage startups was completely different to this software culture in, in the big company. You know, I was right at the start of that journey of learning. And when you, went out and in the UK and looked around and tried to see the internet startups. They weren't, they weren't there. <laughs> so, so really, um, it, it wasn't that intentional. The, the piece that was quite intentional, though, was you know, at the time after graduating, you know, I, I wasn't in a place. I, I didn't feel safe to immediately go and set up a business. Although I had fantastic uh, resources from my parents in terms of uh, access to, to various learning opportunities, I was coming from a you know, very not wealthy background. You know, both of my parents were immigrants to the UK. Um, they had their challenges. My, my father's business um, you know, went bust and we lost our home. And so I was coming from a place of you know, deep financial insecurity at the start of my career. And I think that's a, that's a piece that's not talked about enough um, in the Valley about how um, you know, even just the, the baseline of being able to be, feel safe to start a business is so tough from people Let's who talk about that now then. background. What was what happened with your dad's business, and how did it affect your family? What was the business? Yeah, so um, you know, my father was an immigrant. Uh, he, he he was Indian, and but grew up in Kenya, and came to London in the UK uh, to study uh, to get a PhD in physics. And I'm actually half Indian, half Czech. My my mom came to the UK as well to to study for a PhD. So we're an immigrant family, and um, and my father ended up uh, creating a small business selling. Uh, hi-fi equipment in, in Ealing in London. And for a while it thrived. Um, but then, you know, a big recession came um, in, I guess, the uh, uh, early 90s in the UK, a really big recession. It, it had a tremendously bad impact on, on the economy. And, you know, my dad's business went bust and um, we ended up losing the family home and uh, had to go into, you know, state housing and shared hostels for a while. So it was incredibly kind of disruptive. Wow, 
Yeah. How did, how did it, how did it, weird. how did your family deal with it? I mean, how did your dad deal with it? It, it could hurt a man's pride, but also scare him to see what his kids are going through. You know, I was quite young at the time, so it's you know difficult to okay. <laughs> you know, remember in some ways, but um, you know, yeah, it was, it was very traumatizing for the family. Um, the, we survived because my dad fell back. Um, he had taught uh, physics and math previously, briefly, uh, after graduating and before he'd gone to business. So he fell back to that. So I remember, you know, sitting at the table uh, in the shared hostel with my dad retaking his teacher training and going on to becoming a teacher. So he then spent, you know, the rest of my teenage years um, being, a, being a high school physics teacher. And, and my mom also retrained as a teacher and taught, taught math. Um, and, you know, through all of that, through all the economic uncertainty, the one thing they never let go of was investing in my learning. So the, and the ways they did that didn't necessarily require a lot of money. It just required a lot of intention and a lot of care. And, you know, it fit with who they were and where they'd come from. And also, you know, even with their profession of, of teaching. And, um, you know, I think this part of my life really shaped me and inspires me around creating art school today. Because, you know, part of that experience of having gone through that financial loss and disruption was, you know, I kind of felt pretty out of place in school. <laughs> I was lucky enough to go to a, a good school, but, um, you know, the other kids were in, you know, different kinds of uh, environments coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Whereas I was coming from, you know, two immigrant parents who had fallen on hard times financially. At the same time, and around a similar time in my life, I skipped a year in school because my yeah. grades were always good. And, you know, I was told, you know, don't tell other kids that you've skipped a grade, you know, they'll be jealous. <laughs> or might not, might, not, might not take it well. And so, you know, I felt very out of place and um, struggled uh, really with that. And I think that without school and with the ability to connect kids um, outside of their local environment, there's another benefit, which isn't just about the teachers and being able to access, you know, the perfect guitar lesson for your kid but it's about community. Can you connect kids with others like them who might be going through the same? So are you doing that now? When I, I frankly read the marketplace and community line in the intro, because that's, I think your sentence describing what uh, OutSchool is. But when I experienced it, I didn't see that. I saw a teacher teaching and the students were responding to the teacher, but there wasn't much interaction between the students yet. I almost... Maybe maybe when we did it, we just didn't see uses of things like Zooms out. What is it called? The, um, the breakout you know, rooms. Breakout the rooms. Cast. There, was, there wasn't yeah. much follow-up afterwards. Maybe I just hadn't seen that. But are you adding to the community? Are you adding to the connection? Um, I think the connection varies a lot between classes. So you know, I don't want to take away from you know, what you experienced and say that you know, that's, that, that's not what you experienced. Um, I think it, you know, in order to create connection, you need to build an ongoing relationship. So it's easier when you consistently engage in a, in a class with a group of learners and teacher week in, week out. So right. now, you know, half of our business at this point uh, are what's called ongoing classes, where it's a group that meets consistently every week. And that way, um, it's easier to form relationships. In a one-time class, it's quite tough for the teacher, right, to to really elicit right. um, uh, you know, uh, uh, true interaction because um, there's, uh, you, know, you have to build a certain amount of trust first. Some teachers are very, very good at it, but that is for sure you know, a challenge, but it's also what we want to really get to because I think that uh, classes aren't just about you know, the teacher 
um, imparting knowledge or the teacher mediating yeah. all discussion. I think the most powerful learning experiences happen when the learners are true participants and are taking control of the experience themselves. So and also, in, in some ways, comparing themselves to other students. I know that sounds bad, but when I learn and I see someone who's a little bit further ahead, I feel a little momentum, a little, a little need to, to, to go with what they're doing and try to catch up or see what's possible. When I see someone who's behind, I'll be honest with you, if they're really far behind, I feel better about my progress and I don't want to lose it. And there's this sense of a little bit of competition. Maybe that's just the way that I learn, but it helps. I also watch um, my kid when he was doing things one-on-one -on -one remotely, it wasn't doing much it was, we were helping him, but it's not like when he sees his friend reading and then he thinks I better read too. And I'm, I'm being expected to speak because my friend just spoke up and now she's, the teacher is asking me to speak up. Right. And that, that does help a lot. Um, Absolutely. That kind of, it's, it's a kind of accountability that, you know, that can push you through things that you might otherwise not enjoy or find tough. It's when you see your, your friend doing it, or you feel that you, you know, you've built a relationship with a, with a group of peers and, and they're all game to, to tackle this hard problem or, or go with this challenge. That encourages you to do so. And that's, that's a key part of group learning. I want to get back to where you came up with this idea and then what the first version is, because I feel like the first version from what I saw was just simplistic and elegant and works. And, and then I don't know what you built since then, but let me go, let me talk about my first sponsor. It's a company called TopTal. Do you know about TopTal for hiring developers? I hadn't heard of them before. You hadn't heard of them. Now. You know what? Um, in the real world, I noticed that, I, that most people don't know about them, obviously in my world, because they've been buying ads for me for years, my audience knows. But I remember one time I was walking um, on the floor of my office here in San Francisco, and this guy, Michael, was wearing a, re was wearing a, a top towel t-shirt. I go, what are you doing? You're wearing a top towel t-shirt. How, how, how do you know them? He says, oh yeah, we hire from them all the time. He says he worked with 10 different companies hiring developers. TopTal had by far the best developers. He has an AI company that's working with other companies like these scooter companies all over San Francisco. And he needs to hire data scientists. He needs to hire engineers. He needs to hire um, uh, data analysts. And so he went to TopTal and he was incredibly happy with them. He works at a company called Quant Collective. And the reason I bring this up, Amira, is because one of the hardest things to do is to hire. And one of the hardest jobs to place is developers. I see you're nodding in agreement. Now, up until recently, we've all thought, well, the best of the best developers are here in San Francisco. That's why many companies move to the Bay Area to hire. TopTal said, you know what? There are a lot of people who work for Google, work for Facebook, but don't want to stay here. And they moved out and they went back to the countries that they were from, the cities that they were from, lived there. And TopTal said, we'll make a network of the best of the best of these developers. And when somebody wants to hire them, like out school, they can come to TopTal, tell, tell them what they're looking for, and TopTal will find an expert who can do it, somebody who's done it before. Anyone out there who's listening to me, and Amir, this is going to go for you too. If you want to hire from TopTal, I urge you to go to toptal.com slash Mixergy because when you do, they will give you 80 hours of developer credit when you pay for your first 80 hours in addition to a no-risk trial period. Think about that, a no-risk trial period for developers. All you have to do is go to top as in top of your head, tal as in talent, that's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash M-I-X-E-R-G-Y, toptal.com slash Mixergy. Where did the idea come from for OutSchool? So, um, yeah, I've talked a little bit about my personal motivation for thinking about education and how to apply technology in it. Um, and that was really, uh, really coming into my head a lot 
2013-2014. Before founding OutSchool, I was a product leader at Square, and I uh, founded the Square Payroll product. And um, yeah, at the time, the, the reason these ideas about education were keeping coming into my head and again and again is I wanted to start my, my own family. <laughs> and that naturally got me to thinking about the kind of you know, education that I want, wanted for, for my kids and reflecting on my own education. At the same time, you know, during that time period, we were seeing how marketplace-based models were really transforming other industries. So you know, Airbnb transforming mm-hmm. um, hotels and vacation rentals, Uber and Lyft um, transforming their respective industries. And you know, this idea came to my head when I was thinking about how we could create more learning experiences outside of school. Well, what about you know, like a Lyft line for education? I think mm-hmm. that was literally the first kind of conception of it. Lift line was this kind of group ride, you know, and the metaphor was the, the journey, the ride. Well, that was the learning journey. What if you could just press a button in an app and uh, say, you know, I want my kids to be able to take like a math class or a class of this type and a group of other kids who um, had the same need at the same time could come together and, and make that happen. And that'd be ah. a far more dynamic way to connect people around learning than needing to commit up front for a whole semester or commit to an entire school? Like, what if we could break it down and say, you know, connect kids around an interest at a, at a given moment in time? And that's you were thinking it was going to be demand, demand-based, that people would say, I want to learn this, and then some teacher would come and say, well, you've put together a group of students, I will be able to teach that. Yeah, on demand, like magic, like pressing a button. But you thought and- that the, the demand would come first, and then the supply of teachers would, would come afterwards? Well, really, the, the two together, you know, you'd have this pool of teachers in the same way okay. you have like a, a, a pool of uh, a cars in, in, in the lift model or a, a pool of... Got know, it. And it would just be the marketplace that connects them. Here's the part that I would have thought, Amir, you're out of your mind. It's not going to work. The remote part, the fact that it happens via Zoom for a six-year-old, for a five-year-old, that would have felt to me like, to be honest, a dumb idea. Why did you go online instead of saying... Everybody in their community has teachers. I'll give them a way of finding local teachers to teach piano, to teach yoga, to teach about rock collecting. And where we can't match it up, we'll fill it in with online. Why'd you go online first? You know, I totally agree with you. It wasn't on my radar um, in the first conception of of this idea. It was we were going to create this marketplace. We're going to dynamically connect groups of uh, students and, and teachers. We don't know exactly the right format. But we do know that there's an early adopter community of secular homeschoolers we can experiment with. Ah. What we decided to do was, well, let's go to this community that we'd identified. We're already creating their own learning experiences and crafting their own learning experiences outside the school system uh, here in the Bay Area. Let's go to talk to them and let's try and, let's try and make this happen. Let's experiment. And this was and you calling them up. You, how would you even find them? And w- were you calling them personally? So it was um, customer development. You know, we yeah. used our network and said, and you know, I already, you know, I knew about this community because of a friend who was homeschooling her kids. I learned that it was nothing like what I expected. It wasn't yeah. about, you know, them learning on their own with, with their parent at home. They were going out and about. They were hiring teachers with friends. They were teaching some things themselves. It was very, very social. So that's what put me on to, to, to that community as being doing something really interesting things. So through that friend, you know, we got linked to others and, you know, the cascade of the network, we kept asking for, well, who else should we talk to in this community? Who else should we talk to? And people were very, very willing to talk because it's an under-recognized community. Um, you know, people see homeschooling, less so today, but, but still today, 
as being you know primarily driven by you know religion or you know seeking yeah. kind of isolation or maybe some kind of political um, thread. Whereas mm-hmm. there's a there's a thriving community of secular homeschoolers who just believe in customizing education more finely for their kids and 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 um, and want, really want to craft it themselves. And there's nothing to do with what people most people's motivations. What else did so, you yeah. learn from from talking to them? Well, well, that's that. Well, yeah. that's the thing. You know, we uh, we spoke to them. We started asking them. Well, you know, how do you form these classes? You know, how do you uh, spend time with your kids? And can we build tools? Can we build this marketplace to to help you? And we experimented with helping homeschoolers uh, run field trips together, uh, run uh, find a teacher and run classes together. We experimented with helping them get access to online content. And through all that experimentation, our marketplace which was kind of in private beta at the time, was growing throughout all this time. But one thing that we noticed was that they were using this other form of learning, which we hadn't even thought about before, which was uh, live online classes over Zoom and Skype. So it was actually that early adopters community that were already doing this in 2016. And we didn't think much of it because we had the same reaction that you did. You know, I'm not yeah. sure about this. You know, it, 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 it kind of seems a bit strange. I'm not sure how much learning can occur in this format. But we said, we're in prototyping mode. Our early adopter audience seems to be trying this. Let's try it. We did, and that part of our marketplace took off um, so much faster than other parts to the degree that at the start of 2017, we decided to focus on the format exclusively. And this is like three years before the pandemic, right? right. So it wasn't with this idea that um, you know, there's going to suddenly be this event where everyone has to be remote, but it was with this realization that, wow, our early adopter homeschoolers have really conned on to something here. And we didn't know what at first. We looked at the form and said, well, why is this taking off? Yeah, we didn't expect it. We, we ran into it by an experiment. Why is this taking off? And we started to realize, oh, it's interactive. So it's far more engaging than MOOCs. The kids are excited and they can, they can talk to each other and engage. Um, at the same time, it's more convenient than uh, in person because you don't have to travel and you're not restricted by your local groups. We come back to the local availability um, uh, issue that, that we talked about before. And, you know, from a business perspective, this means we can scale both sides of the marketplace with fewer restrictions because we can have teachers joining from all over the country and accessing demand from all over the country instead of having to try and go city by city. And so for all those reasons, it was like, and, you know, technology, like this was a format of learning that hadn't really previously been possible to make good because the technology wasn't quite there yet. Whereas with Zoom and the ability to integrate it and the APIs it offered, it was good enough. Um, and we realized that there was a real kind of strong why now um, to this technology. But yeah, you know, we discovered it. This was not, the, you know, this format was not, not intentional. Was it uh, a pain that these parents were feeling, the homeschooling parents, where they actually, where they just, was it a nice to have or was it a, I can't believe I can't find this one class for my kid and, and that's how they found out school. Was it a pain or a nice to have back then? You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting trajectory. Back then, it was, I think, more of a nice to have. It was the same kind of um, mentality that caused my parents to invest in helping me uh, learn to code and uh, you know, pursuing my interest in computers. It's like, oh, my kid's interested in this, but and I want to do something about it, but I don't really have... You know, uh, yeah. But, you know, I want to help them see their interest because then they're happy and they come to the dinner table and tell, tell me all about what they've learned. So, right. you know, it's not exactly a pain. It's more like a hope 
But uh, you know, nice to have makes it sound too right. Not nice to have, but not a deep pain. It's somewhere in the middle. It's yeah. this is what I believe in. I believe in fostering my kids' passions in whatever it is—computers, a yeah. uh, uh, space. I don't have this resource to do it. And now OutSchool comes through and does it. You just solved another mystery for me. I was wondering why the earlier versions of your website kept saying activities, activities, activities. It's because a lot of it was in-person activities. All right. Another thing that I understood about you was when I discovered that you were the founder of WebMind, this was one of the early Y Combinator companies. There's something about that that made you say, I need a mission-based company as a follow-up. Before we explain what that was, what was WebMind? So WebMind went through several iterations. It was a browser extension, which would help you search your browsing history, was the first iteration. So uh, the idea was it was you know, your WebMind. It would record everything you do on the web. And this was back in the days, you know, this was like 2008. This was before you had like search history in, um, in you know, Google Chrome as standard. This was, this was a new thing. And um, it would include the ability to search through your private data repositories. And what we would do is um, when you just search on Google, we would take over the right-hand side of the Google search results page and we'd show you, show you, okay, here are results from a Dropbox. Here are results from your previous browsing. Here are some results from Amazon, which we, we used to, um, to monetize. Um, so it was personalized search, uh, and that was our, that was our start, and uh, that was the, the company coming out of Y Combinator in winter 08. I saw an old article where you said, look, I'll even take the pages that are down and we'll make sure you have that. And frankly, for me at the time, that was one of the things that attracted me to, to your software because as a researcher, someone who loves to constantly look at things, I'd go and look. And then the person, when I finally would discover something amazing about someone, they would take it down because, you know, probably the amazing thing was something they don't want me to know. All right. I get that. And then you started iterating and you said, well, what if Google search can search all these different places for you? And you also were saying uh, Yahoo search. And I guess live was, was um, Microsoft's first search. Is That's that right? right. Yeah. There was all these, all these sources at the time where we were kind of integrating them on the, on the Google search results page, treating it as kind of like, you know, a canvas, we're going to integrate various different sources. And then you were going to make it into a white label so other search engines could also have this extra uh, superpower attack. You were basically hunting for, for a thing. You eventually, and I couldn't find any research on this, you, it morphed into something called Trigger.io. What's Trigger.io? So Trigger.io was a big pivot. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we experimented with all those models. We got you know, hundreds of thousands of users it didn't really monetize that well, and we didn't detect it really solving a core need for, for the users. And so um, we wanted to try something else. And um, we realized that in the process of building WebMinds, we developed this you know, internal framework and expertise of being able to deliver browser extensions across multiple different platforms uh, with different, uh, different frameworks. You had to support all these different browsers, even in completely different programming languages. And at the time, um, you know, mobile apps were really taking off and everyone was saying, oh, you know, how do we develop for iOS and um, Android at the same time and, and uh, potentially other third-party platforms? And we thought, well, hey, why don't we take this expertise of doing um, cross-platform application development and apply it to mobile and create a development framework where in a single language, JavaScript, you could create native mobile apps on iOS or Android. Um, at the time, and I, I think still, the, the, there's an open source uh, product called PhoneGap uh, that, that does this. And we thought, well, there's some deficiencies with that. Let's make our own version. And also, let's include a cloud build service 
so that we can make the development experience much, much more seamless for uh, true web developers who don't have any iOS and Android experience. And, uh, and that, that became Trigger.io. Why didn't that take off? I'm seeing here, it, the page is still up and I think you're listed as one of the alumni of the business. 70 bucks a month gets someone one app with a thousand reloads. It seems like reasonable pricing, simple way to get started. Why didn't that business take off? You know, it, it, it's pretty reasonable and it's, and it's an existing you know, running service, which I'm, which I'm really proud of um, and got to a certain degree of success. Um, and we had some big apps uh, launch uh, using the service. And at, at the same time, um, I seem to remember companies like Pars and others were doing mobile backend as a service. So there was this you know, group of companies doing it on the backend and group of companies doing it at the front end. And we were one of the people focused on the front end. I think the backend as a service companies did a little better because there was more consolidation around the methodology. Like, how do you build a mobile app? Well, um, a lot of developers decided that they should use uh, a mobile backend as a service. When developers were thinking about, well, what should we, how should we handle our front end? There was never the um, same consolidation uh, around the idea that you should use a framework like Trio. People, some people had the philosophy that you couldn't make the front end experience good enough unless you did it native across the way. Uh, other people had the philosophy that if you were going to um, use a framework, you better use an open source framework or one from, from a big company. And so, you know, it was very, very fragmented according to the type of app and what they, what they prioritized. And so it ended up, I, I still think the you know, mobile front ends is still a, uh, a, um, a fragmented space. And, you know, one thing I learned from that experience as an entrepreneur is there's actually a danger in when you're doing customer development, when you find this real pain point in the customer of thinking that, it's, that because you found the pain point, you found a good business. Um, you know, when you talk to mobile app developers and you ask them, well, how important is, you know, your front end user experience and how, how much of a pain is it to develop multiple platforms? You know, you'll hear, yeah, it's really, really important. And wow, is it tough? It's a big pain. And, you know, that can kind of make you think, oh, well, there's an important problem that's really cool that people have, and there's a real pain point there. So if you can solve the pain point, then you've created a good business. And I think the, um, you know, the fallacy with that is um, uh, wh- when you think about you know, core pain points, the most important thing uh, that a customer might have, it's not obvious that they should outsource that. If it's the most important thing, then maybe they should hand roll it themselves. Uh-huh. And, um, and you know, I see this play out in other SaaS services, you know, like um, logging companies, people providing SaaS services for logging. Like, is logging core to businesses? Is it the most important thing? What's lo- what do you mean by logging? Um, so uh, logging providers, as in you know, uh, software, uh, uh, an API where you uh, send log files to and, and they collate them and provide you management of, okay. of, your, of, your, of your server logs. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not super familiar with this space, but the, um, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, that uh, with that kind of um, service, it's not core to their customers. So it's an obvious thing to outsource. But if you were trying to identify your customer's main pain points, they probably wouldn't say logging, but that doesn't mean that's not a, not a, uh, a good business to, to go into. And this influenced the strategy without school, but instead of starting out saying, hey, you know, the most important thing that parents really care about is math, that their kid is keeping up with math, that would, that would uh, push you to say, well, I, I need to create a math curriculum. That's the most important thing in this space. We took completely the opposite approach. We wanted to pick up on the, the areas where parents were feeling 
a little bit of pain, a little bit of feeling of missing out, but they were, but they, um, but but wasn't core cool, uh, to their kids' learning. Um, or you know, wasn't the most important thing that school was providing them, and instead looked to provide supply in those areas which were kind of under recognized. And over time, as we built up the business, our class has become more and more closer to the core. Does that make sense? I, Dude, I feel like- if you, I'm looking at myself for a second, just the way that I'm reacting to you, because you just freaking blow my mind. I've understood the importance of pain having done these interviews, but I hadn't had anyone explain it to me that way where there's a danger of finding too much pain. And if something is really painful and it's core to who you are, you're not ready to bring somebody else on. It's just too important. It's like, it's tough for people to raise their kids, but I'm not going to outsource my kids to someone else. Obviously it's been done. There's certain cults that do it. There's certain, there kibbutzes that used to do it but it's not a thing that parents are looking to do. It's, it's who we are. Got it. So, and I love the explanation that we had for math um, that I would have thought, let's focus on math. It's clearly where the most pain is, but that would have been dangerous because math is so painful. It's so important. Parents would have either wanted to do it themselves or get their school's uh, math teacher to teach it. Okay. The first version of the product that you built after you did all this research I wonder what you even built it on. Did you, I'm trying to figure out, did you use some uh, no code platform? Did you start coding from the beginning? What did you do? So I, I built a prototype, which was pure JavaScript front end. I used Firebase. Okay. Um, my friends, Andrew and James from Firebase created an amazing platform. Um, and you know, it, it, it's just so good for uh, you know, our first version. So I was, I was literally kind of prototyping myself um, as part of customer development. So, you know, creating a search page where people could look at local classes with a, with a, from a single list, but it was all front end and then creating an individual class page. Um, you know, I even got to the point where we started taking payments, um, even based on this prototype, I hooked it up. I think I used like Zapier so that <laughs> when a field got filled in in Firebase, Zapier would trigger an alert through PagerDuty and it would page me that someone had enrolled on, uh, on, uh, in this prototype. And then when I got that page, I would manually send that customer a square invoice in order to take payment. So I was actually able to sell classes and you know, have the whole system work by just kind of like plugging together all these, um, all these different services. And it was good enough in order to make our first sales and um, you know, validate the fact that people were willing to um, engage in this kind of product and and take classes. Now that was a prototype. We literally threw away all that code <laughs> and um, you know, built it from the ground up um, uh, from scratch on on Node and and and, and React. Um, but you know that kind of uh, you know we're super scrappy at the start and really focused on trying to work with customers rather than trying to build too much uh, before we're taking our first revenue. I want to talk about my second sponsor and then come back and understand what you do to grow from there. Um, and the first version was also, you didn't even do video. I saw that, I remember my friend, John Bishke, created Edufier years ago. It was one-on-one lessons, so you could learn languages with, one, with a coach or teacher from whatever country you want to learn the language of. It was great. But I think he even created his own communication platform. You guys said, no, let the teachers use Skype or Zoom, connect with what works. All right, makes sense. I want to come back in a moment, but first, I got to tell you, there was a little competition that I, that I had for OutSchool. Very small. Here's the thing. I wanted my kid to, my kids kept asking me questions about insects. I had no freaking answer for them. I couldn't Google it. Um, 
and you guys didn't have a class on it. I thought that would be my easy win. You didn't have a class at the time. So I went on Twitter. I said, does anybody know an entomologist who could answer my kids' questions on Zoom? This guy introduced me to um, Drew from the zoo, from the San Diego Zoo. I said, great, would you get on Zoom? He did. I said, do you mind if I invite some of my kids' friends? said, yes. We did this class. It was fan-freaking-tastic. At the end of it, I said, uh, I called him up. I said, thank you. Is there anything I could do for you? He said, you know, I love doing that. I would love to do more of it. I said, great. I went to HostGator, and within an hour, I had a whole page set up for Drew from the zoo to teach how to, uh, to, to answer these types of questions for students. It was fantastic. We sold tickets. He had this class. I should have probably put him on out school. But here's the interesting thing. I followed up with, with him and other people. I said, what else do you need? And they said, birthday parties. Like we're now doing zoom birthday parties. Can you do that? And he said, I would like zoom birthday parties because now the zoo is kind of opening during the week and I have time at night and in the weekends. So we transitioned his page into that. The reason I'm saying this is he had an idea. I just went to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Yes, I use my own URL so that I get credit for getting the sale. And I signed him up. And within, I think, an hour, the whole page was up with design, with sales process, with everything. If you're out there listening to me, you're going to come up with a need just like that. And you're going to think, how do I do it? How do I do it? Go to hostgator.com. Like that, you can get a domain. Like that, you can build a website, anything that you want. And then it could transition into whatever whatever it becomes based on customer needs, based on your passions, based on who knows. Or maybe you just close it up and you move on because ideas are better when you experiment with them and it's totally fine to have an idea and then say, it's not the right one. And it's easy to close up just as easy it is to build up with HostGator. If you go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy, yes, I will get credit for sending you over there and I appreciate you doing that. But also you're going to get their lowest price because that URL gives you an unbelievably low price, lower than their usual price from HostGator. So get your website hosted. In fact, Mixergy, by the way, is hosted on HostGator. Mixergy and Drew from the Zoo site and so many others, millions literally are hosted on HostGator. Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy and host your site now. Um, what else did you decide we're not going to build into this to focus on what was critical? At the start, we really focused on the marketplace. So can we get parents and teachers interacting to form the classes that they wanted. But you know, as I said, and as you noted, without being opinionated about exactly what the format would take, we left that in the teacher's hands. We gave them you know, a ton of flexibility. We said, hey, you design the class the way you want it. We're only going to provide you with um, the page and we're going to find you the, the audience, but it's really yours to design. Over time, as we've learned what really works with the, with the formats of learning, we've become more and more integrated. So we've now built out the tools that we found that teachers needed, such as you know, the integration with Zoom and our own classroom where teachers and students can interact and um, communities where you know, learners can interact and um, parents can interact. So it was very much you know, the lean startup model. We didn't raise much money at first. We had you know, revenue from you know, the prototype stage, let alone the launch stage. And this was years before we actually formally launched in, in 2017 and very much follow this iterative approach where at every point in the way, look at what's the limiting factor on improving the parent, the teacher, the student experience, and what's the minimum that we could do in order to make a step change in that experience. Why didn't you, from the beginning, use a no-code solution? Why'd you decide that you were gonna code that up yourself? The marketplace offers existed forever. Yeah, you know, um, we knew and had experience, my, my co-founder Nick was the first engineer at Airbnb. And so, you know, 
I, I was very familiar also with you know the frameworks that you could use to make development easier. After all, I'd you know created one and you know was familiar with uh, with other tools like Firebase, and that's why we created the, the first prototypes that way. But we knew that you know ultimately, in order to be successful and have a scaled up consumer business, there's an awful lot that happens behind the scenes that really needs to be customized for your use case. So at some point, you need to make the transition and say. You know, sure, we're going to use third-party services to run this, but they're going to be progressively lower and lower down the tech stack. And so you make decisions at various points to become progressively more customized. We decided to do it pretty early because we believed that you know the kind of products that we're creating for education uh, was pretty unique. You know, um, most education companies are focused on building uh, within the confines of the existing school system, and most marketplace companies don't have to deal with the complexities of education. That it, especially group classes, you know, it's not just a two-sided marketplace, but it's also group buy when you have multiple families enrolling in the same class. And you've got constantly turning over supply because the classes are happening at a fixed point in time. So all these unique characteristics of the domain, combined with the fact that, you know, we had such deep technical skill in our team that we're able to, to utilize that early. I'm not saying it's the only path uh, to be successful. In the domain, it just fits with what we were observing and, and our strengths. That makes sense. And I, because I think you had one-off classes, then you also, like you said, you have weekly classes, but you also have three class. There's some classes that go day, day after day after day for five days or three days in a row. I get that. I think there's certain things that you guys did not end up using. Um, what was it? Um, oh, email. You were using intercom. I think you might still be on intercom. Am I right about that? Yeah, we use Intercom for some of our emails. Some of it's um, uh, uh, baked ourselves as well, but yeah, absolutely. Intercom is a fantastic product that we we use very heavily. I'm going through all my, like, if I do in my inbox a search for OutSchool, Hunter Walk has um, a father's group in San... I don't know if I'm ever supposed to talk. I don't know him. I don't know that he even likes me, frankly. I think I've asked him a few awkward questions in person. But he's got this fan-freaking-tastic group of fathers together. And I'm looking for OutSchool, and I see conversations that they had talking about OutSchool to just give you a sense of the kinds of people who are, who are talking and using you. What did you do to grow beyond the first phone call, the first phone calls, the first one-on-one sessions to bring people in? How did you get more parents on board? You know, the community is so key. Parent community groups, um, homeschooling groups initially, and then other community groups. Uh, initially, a lot of you know, me personally reaching out to influencers, telling them um, what um, I was trying to achieve without school, sharing some of the stories about my own experience and why I cared. Um, and getting people excited, and then they would share it with their groups. Over time, you know, it became more scaled, and we um, engaged with a whole bunch of different Facebook groups. And that was really how we got the demand side of the, of the marketplace going, just, you know, um, one by one, uh, building relationships with the groups, getting them to share um, our classes, getting them excited about what we did. And that was a really key step. You know, there, there are standard channels for consumer growth, which people talk about you know, referral and referral programs, um, SEO or content, uh, paid marketing. And, you know, we use all of those today. And those are super, super important to, to scale. But usually, you know, with a marketplace like ours, you don't go for those scale levers at first. Usually it's very much, you know, one by one compete, uh, convincing you know, influencers within particular communities that you're targeting that what you're doing is interesting and exciting and something that they should check out. Um, and so, you know, that was a lot of the work in, in the first one to two years to build up to a critical mass. I thought um, it was getting the students or the teachers the harder part. You know, it's um, 
it's really uh, almost, we spend most of our time spending on the parent side because what we find is that we, um, you know, teachers come to us organically just so readily. Uh, when we do marketing to parents, you know, some percentage of those are teachers and they come on the site and they spread the word to other teachers. And because they can earn, you know, $40 an hour plus and some teachers are earning very much more than that, um, it's really, really uh, uh, such a compelling value proposition that usually we have more teachers who want to come on board than, um, than we necessarily you know, want mm. at, a, at a given time. And so our main focus is getting the word out to parents and you know, at first convincing them that uh, you know, this new company uh, was worth uh, taking a bet on with their kids' time. Now that we're so much bigger and as we grew big, it was more a, more a question of convincing them, hey, this live online format is something that you should experiment with. And now it's more a matter of you know, holding on <laughs> to the growth and, and scaling up our, our standard consumer channels. But I, I vividly remember those, those kind of stages of, uh, of uh, what we had to focus on with growth. I want to know what broke this year because we're talking about all the great things. But before that, the, the, the teachers don't seem like they're promoting, right? It, it's not their job to promote. It, the way you're seeing it and you're nodding for people who are listening, it's they're absorbing the demand they're not creating it by going out and being what, what Edufire created the name um, uh, teacherpreneurs. You don't want that. That's not their job. It's the not part. that I, I don't want that. And, you know, some teachers do work hard to, to build their own audience. It's just that for most teachers, that's not their core competency. You know, it's not their bread and butter to be marketing themselves or to building up uh, an audience on social media um, or to be advertising their classes on Facebook. That's really where we can add a lot of value, where you know, we understand growth loops, engagement loops, the usual consumer channels, um, and can aggregate that demand across um, all of the, the different topics and, and, uh, and classes. And so teachers really rely on us for that piece. So for teachers, it's not just a platform that they are able to operate the class. We actually generate the majority of demand for teachers. So then what did break? Suddenly... All schools closed, people stuck at home, they're looking for a way to, to teach their kids. What didn't go right for you guys? Um, you know, that weekend in March when there were mass school closures, we saw it coming. So we uh, were prepared to a degree. How? How did um, you see it coming? Well, in late February, the CDC uh, uh, put out this guidance, you know, saying that there was this you know, thing called coronavirus that could have a big impact. And in that guidance, they said, Schools might need to prepare for internet-based teleschooling. That's wow. what they call it, internet-based teleschooling. And I kind of looked at that and I said, well, what the hell do they mean by internet-based teleschooling? And then it kind of started to dawn on me, oh, oh bleep. <laughs> We're internet-based teleschooling. <laughs> what, they mean is, what they mean is what we do. And then the next thought was, well, how on earth is the entire school system going to move over to this thing that they're calling internet-based teleschooling uh, overnight? Um, and then the thought came, well, well, of all the U.S. organizations out there, we are the largest in terms of and the most experienced at this format, given that we've been doing it since 2017. So what we did is we kicked off a training program, a free training program for teachers in schools to try and get them up to speed in time. Because we said, to well, teach the even the, the teachers who are going to be outside of your platform, yeah. but are suddenly thrust into the online world, you want to teach them how to do this. Exactly, because we, we just wanted help. And so we we're like, well, the main thing we have to offer here is our expertise, so let's, um, let's start training teachers in schools. And as we started doing that, we had thousands and thousands of attendees in these webinars that we were running on how to do this style of learning. We realized this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's no way 
we can train enough teachers. There's no way the school system can adapt quickly enough. And so then the second strand of our preparation was um, to launch a financial assistance program at outschool.org because we realized, oh, wow, you know, schools are going to be severely affected. The people are going to be harmed the most, the people who can't afford outschool classes. Um, so let's create a financial assistance program. We found some initial donors. We uh, committed a, a million dollars ourselves to fund scholarships for people in need to take outschool classes. Um, and now, you know, that program is much larger. We've made large commitments and we've uh, got commitments from, from other uh, donors. So those are the things we did prepare. And then on that Friday, it was like Friday, March 13th, 2020. And mass school closures across the country had just been announced. We'd just launched our free classes program for the financial assistance um, uh, uh, for families in need. And our numbers just, you know, they, they didn't so much go exponential. It was just like looking up a cliff face. Yeah. Uh, never seen anything like it. And, you know, I saw very fast growth at Square. Uh, my co-founder, Nick, as first engineer at Airbnb, you know, we've seen very fast growth in, in other circumstances. Never but not like this. Not seen anything like it. Um, and, you know, the whole team, and at the same time, this was only a week into working remotely. Like the entire team would built this company as an in-person company. Um, and the whole team moved, you know, was, was working remotely. We worked through the weekend. I remember being up at, you know, 2 or 3 a.m. in that Friday, Saturday night, working with my co-founders to put um, some limits in uh, to the program so that uh, we could be sustainable, uh, calling up donors so we could keep the scholarships going while our core business was also going through the roof. Um, putting in kind of uh, quick fixes in place with our infrastructure to keep uh, the site up. Um, we had some outages, it, you know, uh, but you asked what broke. I, I would say these weren't kind of you know, Twitter farewell style outages. We, we managed to keep up. I think you know, the thing that really broke was class availability. Like we went from you know, classes being, uh, you know, having typically like five or six students, having 18 and like completely selling out large chunks of our marketplace. So on the Sunday, um, I put a call out saying that, you know, we're looking to recruit 5,000 more teachers to teach in the platform in the next two weeks was the challenge I set us. And, you know, we're very fortunate to get a lot of publicity of that call out because at the same time, you know, other companies were shedding uh, staff and, you yeah. know, big opportunities were, were becoming much more rare. And so um, that was the main thing that was broken, just the supply of, of teachers and classes and, we really had to scramble to, to address that. And, and you have to do that without, with quality control because we're not an open marketplace. We vet every single teacher on the site. So we had to scale up our team and ability to do that at the same time. So, you know, um, our sanity was probably the closest thing that, that, that came to breaking uh, during that time. We're, we're, we're in a better place now, but, you know, it's very, very intense. Doesn't, there's, there's a CFO at Y Combinator who has the same last name as you. You, you two related? Yes, Kirsty, my wife. Ah, okay. Does that help to connection? I know you went. I didn't realize, but I just found out that you went to Y Combinators again with uh, OutSchool too. Does it help to be able to draw on her to be able to draw on this connection? You know, Kirsty's my main advisor. I don't mean her, but Y Combinator. Yeah, she's your, your I main mean, advisor. Kirsty, uh, as an individual, you know, even aside of Y Combinator, my main advisor, and you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have a Y Combinator partner who I'm able to turn to and ask key questions and who has such, such insight. Um, you know, I went through Y Combinator a second time uh, without school. Um, so I already knew, you know, the program and was known by the program. 
you know, they, they didn't make it easy for me. They gave me a hard time. I had to go through the interview, uh, same as everyone else. And, you know, Jeff Ralston was asking some, some pretty probing questions because he knows, he knows a thing or two about, about education. Um, I think, you know, for sure it helped having been a Y Combinator alumni uh, from uh, 08 um, because, you know, I had some insights into what they were looking for, the application process. What, what I mean is, did, were you able to call on this whole network and say, look, we suddenly have explosive growth. We need help and have them come through. I think you raised money through the Sesame Street people. Were they helpful or was it, it sounds to me like it was just, there's nobody out there who can help you deal with the, with the growth. It's just on you guys. You, your co-founder, your team. You know, um, we got so much help in the last few months in lots of different ways, but there is this challenge in how to digest help. You know, putting out a call for help and then being able to receive it yeah. when you're going through such intense growth is actually kind of quite challenging to do, which is why, you know, ultimately you lean on the people who are there full-time and, and fully present. So, you know, the team, my co-founders, our team members uh, were most key. Um, but, you know, our investors, too, um, in helping us, you know, reach out to people who could help us get those teachers online, um, spread the word of that, and help advise us on, you know, what are the things to prioritize when you go through hypergrowth like this. Um, I remember speaking to um, Ali at Y Combinator and others saying, hey, what are the most, what are the most important things? And, you know, I think I, I really remember him saying, well, supply. <laughs> I think I was talking to him on Sunday night before I, before I sent out, um, you know, that call to actually more teachers. And culture, like you're about to need to start hiring very rapidly. You better have thought really carefully about, you know, who you're going to bring on board and, and how. Um, and that's going to be key to, to, you know, staying sane while, uh, while scaling. Um, so, but we've had so much help, you know, in the, in the past, uh, uh, past six months, especially from the community of parents and teachers who, who we really rely on to, to create these experiences. By the way, I'm looking up your, your wife. She's badass. Christy was there from the early days of Y Combinator. She apparently was the one who helped founders get money into their bank accounts in the early days, just back when they were offering, what, $11,000 plus $3,000 per entrepreneur, helping them set up their companies in Delaware, the works. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah, damn she was impressive. First, she was the first employee at Y Combinator um, after the, you know, the four uh, initial uh, partners founded it. Um, we came over in 2008, uh, sorry, 2009, after I you know, founded my first company in 2008 and went through Y Combinator then. But uh, you know, it, we're, we feel very lucky to have been part of the Y Combinator journey and really seen that from going from, at the time, was this, you know, Y Combinator their own startup story. They were a small community trying to do this you know, interesting thing and create this new funding model. And now they're a, they're a behemoth within... You know, yeah, weren't the, you with them uh, when I think I read an article where you were staying at somebody's dorm at MIT just so you can go and apply, which made me realize that you were with them when they were in, in Boston, right? Before we, they moved to Silicon Valley. Yeah, with yeah. WebMinds, we were interviewed in Boston. We actually took part in the program in Silicon Valley because that, back in those days, they, they flipped coasts um, mm. for each program. But yeah, this was, the, this was the early days when, you know, just uh, I think in, in our batch in Winter 08, it was... 20 founders, uh, you know, you would, you get, uh, something around $20,000 and, um, you know, demo Day, would give you, uh, what was it? Uh, chili that he would make at home. Is that right? He would, he would make a home. Um, uh, he thought it was good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they still provide, provide dinner, but, but now it's, now it's professionally catered. But, you know, back in those days, demo day was just a small room 
And you know, there's a, still a certain amount of skepticism from the investor community whether this was really a good idea as uh, as a way of uh, of creating startups. And you know, I think Y Combinator has been emphatically proved as a um, as a very good idea in terms of encouraging. Yeah, I read an article where she was there. There wasn't enough money, I guess, and for a while there, she took in the two million dollars from Sequoia. Which think about that. Y Combinator needed two million dollars in order to continue. And then eventually, uh, Y Combinator was self-sustaining using money from its exits. Um, let me close out with this. First of all, both of you two, you badass. Um, number two, what else are you seeing that's necessary now in this post-pandemic education world? As somebody who's in it, who sees some of the problems, who sees some of the opportunities, what do you think should be created? What do you think the future should look like? I think about a couple of different things. Firstly, I think about an evolution of in-person learning. You know, we are the online piece and there's yep. lots and lots of advantages to um, this live online format of learning. But I think in-person learning really needs to evolve as well. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to separate out some of the different functions that school provides. You know, it's a place where you can drop off their kids and they can be safe and taken care of. Yep. Um, it's a place where kids uh, find community and um, uh, socialize with other kids and develop friendships. Um, it's also a place where learning happens, where uh, academic classes are taught. It's also a place where enrichment happens. And um, you know, we're starting to see a separation of, of those pieces with trends like um, micro school networks, you know, learning pods, which it sounds like you're, you're very familiar with. Love so me. I think there's a lot more innovation to come there. I would really like to see schools and libraries and micro schools turn into learning centers where, um, you know, they uh, primarily are focused on providing community and a safe place for kids and then offering connections to a variety of other um, resources and providers to, to uh, provision various forms of instruction. So I see an ecosystem where you know, OutSchool is playing one part, which is you know, supplemental um, education with groups of kids from, from around the world. And then I'd like to see a lot more innovation happen in the other parts. That what do you see in, in the... My, uh, pods make total sense to me. I think there's some number of people who are going to stick with pods for the rest of their kids' careers. Five or so kids in a room together learning. Um, I think out school is going to be a part of it. I think in class is going to be a part of it. But when you say libraries need to facilitate some of this, uh, what do you, I guess I'm not following that part. So, um, you know, what I'm imagining is a place where your kids could go and take part in in-person classes, or they can access online resources, or take part in out-school classes. And it has the internet set up, the equipment, it's publicly available, and um, that could be, you know, school can play that role, or other local institutions like, like libraries could play that role. And Got so, so um, just like I go to the library to learn from a book, I could go to the library and say, I'm trying to understand how, I don't know, AI works. And you might and pick it, up a book. And then you might attend an out-school class. Then you might right. talk to a person who's coming to the library for exactly that thing. And there are all these different modes, but the space um, that's provided by the library or the school is designed to facilitate those interactions. I could see that. I could see also schools eventually signing up for out-school. Like they could end up being your top customers, schools who are buying this in bulk for their students and, and participating. Um, I feel like we've got this cusp of, we're finally willing to try something new. When was the last time we tried something new in education, right? Industrial revolution? Yeah. You know, it, this is such a terrible circumstance with COVID that, you know, uh, I'm a little nervous saying this 
Um, but uh, I, I will anyway, you know, if there's one silver lining yeah. about all the difficulties that we've had this year, it's that um, it's an opportunity to try new things and to really realize, you know, some of the defaults that we've held dear maybe don't need to be default anymore. And you see that in the workplace as well. You know, we've transitioned to be fully remote uh, for the forever. And so many companies done that because they've gone through this transition was, wow, all these things that we were afraid of about, you know, working remotely, well, we have to deal with them anyway. And oh, yeah. it's turned out that with some practice and some, some experience, it's not, you know, the downsides weren't as bad and the upsides maybe look more appealing. And I hope we can see and find some silver linings to this in education, even after, um, you know, hopefully, you know, vaccine comes soon and, and we can, um, you know, get back to a more normal way of life. I hope that it won't be the same life that we had before. I'm, I'm looking at the different groups that I'm a part of, and there are a lot of parents who are saying, yay, school could be open soon. I hope that it doesn't go back to what it was before because we're so exhausted that we don't want to keep trying. I want to keep trying. I don't think it should be the way it was before because it was making hardly anyone happy. I was going to say no one happy, hardly anyone happy. All right. You got to be so freaking proud. Are you freaking proud or are you just exhausted and thinking, are you, are you jaded at this point? I'm definitely not jaded. I am quite exhausted, but you know, I am incredibly uh, proud and grateful of uh, you know, what we've achieved and you know, what our team and, and teachers have achieved. You know, it's, it's a rare privilege to find yourself with a product that can be so helpful to so many at a critical time. And um, you know, it's, it's been very, very challenging, but, but yes, I, I am very, very proud and grateful for that. Glad to hear it. I think it's going to be a lot of pain for you, but damn, there's some things that are just worth suffering for. There's some things that you look back when you're a freaking old man and you say, what was the, oh yeah, I know what the point was. I did that. I moved that away from what it was before to where it is now and you're doing it. All right. For everyone who's listening to me, you probably know if you're a parent, the website is outschool.com. If you don't, I think you should just go take a look at it. This is the future of education, I think. This is the future of, I think it's going to be the future. I think at some point you're going to start going into colleges. I think, nah, and I don't know, there's just the, the K to 12 is so big. It's such a big, massive issue. But I, I, I love the way you're doing it. Maybe somebody else will do the college version and somebody else will do the adult learning version. Anyway. Congratulations, and I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. Really, seriously, the people over at HostGator have been supporting me for a long time. If you're into building a website or you don't like your hosting company and want to switch, go to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. And if you're hiring a developer, if you're really trying to have impact, challenge the people at TopTal to blow your mind because the developers they have are, are mind-blown, truly. Go challenge them and challenge me by going to TopTal.com slash Mixergy. Amir, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. It's a pleasure talking to you. Bye.